This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 17. And as you make your way to the 17th chapter of Job, I just want to take a moment to set the stage for our study tonight. And I I first want to remind you that the bulk of this book is actually focused on the faith of a man named Job. And while it's true that Job was a man of integrity who feared God and shunned evil, Well, it's also true that the Lord allowed Satan to put his faith to the test. And as a result, you know, Satan engaged in a series of attacks on Job's family, his flocks, as well as his physical health. And when all was said and done, Job responded to these tragedies by declaring, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Incredible faith. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's initial response to his trials and troubles was simply to bless the name of the Lord. And regardless of whether he had or had not, he was ready to bless the name of the Lord. And then after his three friends arrived and began to accuse Job of living in unrepentant sin, that's when Job responded to those false accusers by declaring this. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. In other words, Job was a ride-or-die believer. You know, he was a ride-or-die believer, and he was ready to maintain his faith through every trial, even if it killed him. At the same time, though, he was also ready to defend his track record. He was ready to defend his faith against every false accusation that were being made by his friends, and that's exactly what he did. And at the same time, Job was also struggling to understand the reason for his suffering. He was ready to to defend his integrity before his friends, but he was also wondering why God was allowing him to suffer. He didn't know that his suffering had been caused by a fallen angel named Satan. So he was left wondering why the Lord was pouring out this punishment on him when he had done everything that he could to walk close with the Lord. And from this faulty perspective, Job had come to the conclusion that the Lord had turned him over to the hands of wicked people and for no other reason than because the Lord hated him. That's what he believed. He had come to the conclusion that the Lord hated him. And with this in mind, we can see then that Job, he was a faithful man who was wavering in his faith. He was a faithful man who was wavering in his faith. And while I have no doubt that he was a man who was ready to trust in the Lord until his dying day, he was also praying for that day to come sooner rather than later. Yeah, he was praying for the day of his death to come sooner rather than later. And by sooner, I mean that the Lord would send him to Oklahoma. Okay, no, that's not true. As I consider his concerns and his complaints, you know, Job was clearly a man who was depressed. And one reason why is because he couldn't see the purpose in the pain that he was suffering. In similar fashion, I'm sure that most of us have wavered in our faith at some point in time. And I have no doubt that we've all struggled to understand the purpose for the pain and the suffering that God has allowed in our lives. It's easy to look at the tragedies that happen in this world. It's easy to look at 9-11 as we just you know, observed that memorial or, or the Maui fires that recently occurred or the Morocco earthquake. And, and we can look at all of these things and begin to wonder why God allows all of these things to happen. Why does God allow us to suffer in these sorts of ways? When, 
An all-powerful God could clearly, clearly stop these things from happening. Then when these tragedies hit closer to home, well, our family and our friends end up being affected. And it's not uncommon for believers to become discouraged, even depressed, as we wonder why God seems to just sit back and sit by and allow us to suffer in these sorts of ways. And if this sounds like something that you're struggling with today, then it's my prayer that this study will fill your heart with hope. It's my desire that this study would fill your heart with hope as we learn to rejoice in the truth of God's perfect plan, all the while you know, understanding that those who walk by faith with Jesus can have a heart that's filled with hope, even on the most troublesome day. Now with this as the focus, I want to turn our attention now to the 17th chapter of Job. And if you would, let's pick up our overview of this incredible book, beginning at verse 1. Here Job declares, My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Are not mockers with me? Does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Job, he's confessing that his spirit was completely crushed. His spirit had been crushed and consumed by all of the troubles that had destroyed his family. And as he considered the way that his friends you know, were mocking him with many false accusations, Job here cries out for the grave to cover him. He wants to escape this situation by simply dying and being buried. And without debate, Job was struggling with a sort of deep depression that leaves a person feeling completely helpless and hopeless. And you know, while I realize that it's easy for those who are struggling with these sorts of feelings to sink deeper and deeper into the pit of despair, well, it's important for us to remember that the promises of God are more trustworthy than the overwhelming feelings that lead us to believe that the suffering we're enduring today will never end. Those feelings will lead us to think that you know the, the, the worst day of my life will never end. This is going to just keep on going. And yet God has promised otherwise. So which is more reliable? The way we feel today? Or the promises that God has made? Where is our faith? In, in our fears of suffering forever? Or in the promises that the Lord has made to us? this question of mine, I want to encourage you to consider something that King David presented in the 34th Psalm. It's Psalm 34, verses 18 and 19, where King David declares this. He says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Christian, listen, if you have a broken heart tonight, if your spirit has been crushed, the Lord is near. The Lord has a plan to deliver you, and he's promised to do it. With that being the case, I encourage you, stop trusting in your greatest fears and to start believing in the promises of the Lord. The Lord is near to those who have a crushed spirit. And he's promised to draw near to those who draw near to him. I like the way that James put it in the fourth chapter of his epistle. It's there where he declares, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, 
and purify your heart, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Christian, listen, those of us who have been sinking into the pit of despair because life is unfair, well, we do well to remember that God resists the prayers of those who are proud. Those who are filled with pride and insist that everything should always be fair for me and nothing should ever be unfair and, and these sorts of things, you know, God, God resists those pride-filled prayers. And it's for this reason that James encouraged us to humble ourselves in the sight of God as we prayerfully draw near to him in our, in our time of need. And, and sadly, Job didn't have James chapter 4. He couldn't just open up to James 4 and go, oh, I need, to, I need to humble myself and I need to draw near to God. He didn't have James 4, but we do. But, but rather than humbling himself in the sight of the Lord, you know, Job was demanding an interview with God because he wanted God to explain himself on, uh, about how, how God could allow these things to happen to him when he's tried so hard to be righteous and whatnot. Rather than assuming the best about God, Job was beginning to believe that the Lord was the one who was blinding the eyes of those who were mocking him. And so rather than drawing near to the Lord with a humble heart, Job prayerfully pleaded with the Lord to defend his own reputation before his friends because God was somehow allowing Job to gain a bad reputation in in the eyes of his buddies. So Job was like, God, you need to defend me. I want to consider how Job puts it here in our text tonight. And so look with me here at Job chapter 17. We'll pick up our study at verse 13. Here Job cries out to the Lord, Now put down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? For you have hidden their heart from understanding. Therefore, you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children will fail. Now, from this we see here that Job was expecting God to come and defend his innocence before his friends. And while I don't mean to suggest that it's wrong to ask the Lord to defend us before false accusers, We must not fail to recognize here that Job was simultaneously insisting that the Lord was probably the one who had blinded the eyes of those who were mocking him. He's basically saying, hey God, you're the one who's keeping them from seeing my innocence, and so you need to come along and fix this. You need to come along and defend my character before these people. In order to see how I come to this conclusion about these verses... I want to consider the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation render verses 3 and 4. They put it like this. You must defend my innocence, O God, since no one else will stand up for me. You have closed their minds to understanding, but do not let them triumph. As we consider this translation of the Hebrew, well, it seems clear to me here that Job is expecting the Lord to come and defend his innocence. And the reason why, well, it's because he had come to the conclusion that the Lord was the one who was blinding the eyes of his friends. And without debate, Job was confident of his, that, that, that his expectations here and that his assumptions were completely justified. He he believed that his expectation that God should come and defend him justified his expectation, you know, uh, that, that God should come along and plead his case justified. And his assumption that God was the one who was blinding their eyes so that they couldn't see his innocence, well, he felt like that was justified too because why else would they doubt him? And yet all of this was just based in pride. 
This was a pride-filled prayer. God, you did this to me. You need to come and fix it now. Really? He was failing to realize that the prayers of the proud are ignored by the Lord. Why would God answer such a prayer? I'll remind you, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That being the case, those who present their prayerful expectations to the Lord, like God has to come and do something. You need to come and fix my problems, God. Well, how often are the problems that we're in the middle of created by us? And then we want God to bail us out, you know, and whenever we find ourselves reaping the rotten fruit of the decisions we made. Listen, those who present their prayerful expectations to the Lord in a pride-filled way, they're going to continue to be disappointed by the silence of our Savior because God resists the proud. Rather than demanding answers from God for why he allowed us to experience pain and suffering, we do well to follow the instructions that the Apostle Peter presented in 1 Peter chapter 5. It's verses 6 and 7. There Peter declares, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Rather than demanding that God exalt us above the trials and the troubles of this world, we ought to instead approach him with all humility as we spend some time remembering that we truly deserve eternal punishment for all of our sins. What we truly deserve from God is eternal punishment because of all the sins that we've committed. And so when we come before God and say, God, you you need to do this for me, we're not approaching God as sinners who are saved by grace according to faith in Jesus Christ. No, instead, you know, when we come to God and say, you need to fix this, we're, we're treating God like he's our servant rather than we his. And so it's with a humble heart that we ought to come and cast our cares at his feet, not because he owes us something, but because we recognize he's a gracious God and he cares for us. God is gracious and he cares for us, and so it's with humility that we should come before him and present our prayerful supplications. Then we can patiently wait for the Lord to exalt us according to his perfect timing, because that's what he promised to do. When we humbly approach him, we can trust that he will then exalt us in his way at his time. Unfortunately for Job, he didn't really understand this, and one reason why is due to the fact that he was focusing all of his attention on the trial rather than focusing his faith on the Lord. And to to explain my point here, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 17. You would look with me here beginning at verse 6, because here Job goes on to declare here, but he has made me a byword of the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit. My eye has also grown dim because of sorrow, and all my members are like shadows. Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's informing his friends here that the Lord is the one who decided to turn his name into a byword, or in other words, a, you know, he's basically turned Job, Job's name into a word of shame in the eyes of every person. And according to Job, you know, the Lord was the one who had turned him into a target for those who were spitting in his eye, and then he's wondering why he really can't see that well. You know, but uh, 
He believes the Lord is the one who, who has done this. The, the Lord is the one who has made a mockery of his trage- tragedy. That's what he believed. I like the way the scholars who created the Bible in basic English rendered verses 6 and 7. They put it like this. He has made me a word of shame to the peoples. I have become a mark for their sport. My eyes have become dark because of my pain, and all my body is wasted to, sh- to a shade. In other words here, Job is convinced that the Lord was the one who decided to humiliate him with all of these afflictions. And as a result, his humiliation caused him to become a bad example in the eyes of the rest of the world. And as a result of that, the exalted status of Job was then ruined, which left him just a mere shadow of his former self. He, he, he was once you know, a mighty man of valor. He was once a, a a man of great prestige in the community. He was one of the wealthiest men in the land and these sorts of things. And people looked up to him as a leader of the community. But now he's just a byword. He's just, his name is like mud. And from this, we can see how Job was not only struggling with the emotional pain of losing his children. He's not only struggling with the physical pain caused by the oozing boils that were you know, weeping and seeping all over his body, but he was also struggling now with the social humiliation of a damaged reputation. Because everyone who heard his story would look at him and think, oh, he must be living in secret sin. And, and, you know, what's even worse is that he was more focused on the humiliation of a damaged reputation and 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 with this focus, he he continued to sink deeper and deeper into his personal pit of despair. Now, as we consider this struggle, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that there are many Christians who also, you know, attempt to avoid this sort of, you know, social humiliation, and and specifically the social humiliation that comes along with being a follower of Jesus Christ. Yeah, many Christians will hide their connection with Christ, and the reason why is because they want to protect their reputation rather than to become a believer who's being ridiculed for our relationship with Jesus Christ. I remember when I first converted to Christ, you know, I was in the music scene here in Austin, Texas, all of my friends, everybody I was surrounded with, part of the same scene. And yeah, we loved mocking Christians. Christians were easy targets to make fun of. Their music was garbage you know their their whole lifestyle was just nonsense and 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 we mocked it and i remember you know running into to my old friend who actually led me to the lord jesus and you know he's an old school punk from the you know austin scene here and you know i remember him coming to the skate shop and he's like handing over all of his old skateboard stuff and thrasher magazines and all of that we're just kind of like dude's lost his mind Oh yeah, he was sane when he was all drugged up and drunk and punching holes in walls, and that was all that was all fine. But now he's all calm and worshiping Jesus, and we think he's out of his mind. This guy's crazy. And yet he had no problem coming before his old friends and, and, and presenting us with the gospel of grace, despite the fact that it was going to damage his, you know, illustrious reputation that he once had. And it's sad that you know so many Christians you know don't follow those same footsteps. No, instead they they want to guard their faith in Christ. They don't want anybody to really find out because they don't want to be ridiculed. They they don't want to gain the reputation of being a Jesus freak and, and all these sorts of things. And 
So we're not surprised to see that there are Christians who hide their connection with Christ. They, they don't talk about church. They, you know, they don't talk about Jesus. They don't share the gospel at work because they don't want anybody to know that they're Christians. If this sounds like something you struggle with, and it's my hope that you'll realize that it's better to be mocked for following our Messiah than it is to be embraced by the masses for all the wrong reasons. It's better to be mocked for following our Messiah than it is to be embraced by the masses for all the wrong reasons. To make my case, I want to take some time to consider the Beatitudes that Jesus presented during the Sermon on the Mount. So hold your place here in the book of Job. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. As you make your way to the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel account, I just want to take a moment to point out that it's here in the Sermon on the Mount where we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually promising to bless the broken-hearted believers who have suffered persecution for the sake of our Savior. And so I want to take just a little bit of time here to consider all of these Beatitudes. If you want to go more in-depth with this study, I encourage you to go listen to my study from Matthew chapter 5. But for now, let's consider what what, uh, Jesus says here in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 3. Here Jesus declares, blessed are the poor in spirit. That word poor means afflicted. Blessed are the afflicted in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets, who were before you. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's helping his audience to understand that there are many blessings for the believers who are willing to suffer for the sake of our Savior. And yeah, this includes the blessings for those who are afflicted in their spirit because of the suffering we experience here in this world. This includes blessings for those who are persecuted and and reviled and rejected for the name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. That being the case, you know, we, we need to stop worrying about how the world sees us. You know, if you're worried about your reputation in the eyes of the world, you know, I think back to how we saw my, uh, my buddy that led me to the Lord, how, how we looked at him before he came to Christ and, and afterwards, and we had it completely backwards. My view of that person was completely upside down. And after my conversion to Christ, then I was able to see it the right way. I was able to to look at my buddy Mike and and all other Christians through the right lens. And so if you're worried about how the world looks at you, I, I remind you they're looking at you through the wrong lens. And so when they ridicule you in the name of Jesus Christ, you know, they if they persecute you for the sake of our Savior, it's because they don't have the correct way of viewing. Christ or Christianity. And so why are we worried about how the world sees us? Why are we worried about the way the world sees us? 
If they hate Jesus, they're going to hate us too. What are we worried about? Rather than allowing their attacks to push us into the pit of despair, let's simply remember that the blessings of the Lord will abound for the believers who are persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ. And to further make my case, I want to consider how Job puts it here in our text tonight. If you would look with me again here at Job chapter 17, we'll pick up our study at verse 8. Here Job goes on to declare, Upright men are astonished at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite, yet the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's snapping out of his self-focus just for a few seconds. And as we take a moment to consider the point that he was making here, it seems to me that Job is assuring his friends that his story about how you know, he was blameless before God and yet then suffered in these sorts of ways, that this, this would eventually be something that encourages the hearts of righteous believers who don't understand why they're suffering. And listen, this was prophetic in nature because here we are tonight being encouraged by the story of Job. Maybe you're suffering tonight and for reasons that you don't quite understand and you're wondering why God is allowing it, and yet it's the story of Job that helps us to see that, yeah, these things happen. Life can be unfair. And often God allows it. And yet, does he not have a perfect purpose in what he allows? And if you're wondering and, and, and struggling to understand why the wicked seem to be enjoying their blessings, well, the story of Job helps us to understand that as well, just as Job assumed it would. And without debate, the world is filled with wicked people who seem to have all of the finest things in life, while many who are living for the Lord are living paycheck to paycheck. Some of the most corrupt people in this world are, are also the wealthiest people in this world. And I don't mean to say that all rich people are bad and all poor people are good, and that's not my point. But it oftentimes seems like you know, the, the wealthiest people in the world are also some of the most wicked people in the world because they have all the money, they want to do whatever they want. And so they buy islands and they kidnap kids and they do all these sorts of wicked things. And it's discouraging for the disciples of Christ who are living for the Lord to look at all of this and wonder, why does God allow this to happen? And, and I can't help but to wonder, is it that we really just covet the money? Is it that we just really desire the wealth of this world? If that's something that you struggle with, if you're wrestling with the Lord because you've been praying for more money and he hasn't given it to you, there might be a reason for that as well. First of all, I want to remind you that the wealth of this world is going to burn up in the end. Conversely, the riches of everlasting rewards will be enjoyed forever. I like the way that Paul put it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's Verses 6 through 10, where he declares this, he says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich 
fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now I want to take a moment to think about this, because listen, as Paul points out, we brought nothing into this world. I brought nothing into this world but a bad attitude, and you know, the Lord's been healing me of that ever since. But we brought nothing into this world. We, we didn't bring a bank account. We didn't bring cash. And Paul says, in similar fashion, you're leaving with nothing. You didn't bring any cash into the world. You're not taking any cash out. I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. We can't take our savings. We can't take our stocks. We can't take our Roth IRAs. We can't take our 401ks. We don't get to take any of this with us. Somebody else gets it, probably the government. And there is no wealth transfer between this world and the world to come. There's no exchange rate. We're not, we're not taking anything with us. And, and therefore, those who are choosing to store up all of their treasure here on the earth, well, they're going to end up losing everything in the afterlife. Now think about that for a moment. You know, when we see those who are wicked and, and acquiring more and more of this world's wealth and we begin to envy them and we begin to wonder why does the Lord bless these wicked people with worldly wealth while he keeps us living paycheck to paycheck, be careful. Be careful that you're not allowing your heart to deceive you and mislead you. Listen, if you're a believer who is struggling with this issue, it's important to remember that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. That's not to say that all poor people go to heaven and all rich people go to hell. That's not my point. But he's saying that those who he keeps in a place of just having enough, these are the same people that he exalts by helping them to become great people of faith. So much for the prosperity gospel, huh? Listen, you can, you can embrace Oprah's secret or Joel Osteen's name it and claim it nonsense or, or whatever, and you can try to claim all this wealth and make it happen and Tony Robbins your life away, but... Maybe the Lord just wants you to be a poor person who's filled with faith. Is that, is that not a righteous calling? And is that not a path of godliness and contentment which results in great gain forevermore? Now again, just to be clear, money in and of itself isn't evil. Money in and of itself isn't evil. It's the love of money. That is a root of all kinds of evil. It's the desire to be rich. But God, I could do so much for you. Yeah, God, God needs you to be rich so that you can help him. Right? Sounds so spiritual. It's the desire to be rich that has caused many Christians to stray from the faith in their greediness. And as a result, many believers have been pierced through the heart with many sorrows. Why? Well, because they stopped following the Lord and they started following after the money. 
They stopped going to church. They started going to work more. They started putting in more and more hours. Oh, I don't have time for a devotion in the morning because I got to get, get up. Gotta, gotta, it's time to make the donuts, right? Only old people get that joke. It's better to be poor and filled with faith than to be wealthy and tempted by the foolish and harmful lusts of this world which drown men in destruction and perdition. And listen, if you can be a great person of faith and have lots of money too, man, praise the Lord. Can I borrow some money? <laughs> but if it comes between the two, faith or, or riches, I, I would rather be a person of faith than a person of great wealth. I like the way that Jesus addresses this issue in Matthew chapter 6. It's verses 19 through 21 where he declares, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says this. He says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is here on earth, then where's your heart? It's down at the bank, sitting in your driveway, in, in the, the house that you can't wait to have. Or If that's where your heart is, then it's no wonder that you're not really walking by faith. It's no wonder why you're drowning in a pit of despair as you cry out, God, why haven't you given me more? Listen, if you really want to rest in a solid retirement plan, I encourage you, go with the one I'm using. It's the one where everything gets stored up in heaven and I'm broke here for a season, but this season's about over. Look at me. I'm just about done with my race and I'm ready for it to be over because I know I've got some riches up in heaven and I can't wait to cash in. If you find yourself struggling because the Lord seems to be blessing the wicked with worldly wealth while withholding it from you, I encourage you to remember that the Lord has a plan to bless the believer with everlasting riches which come from Christ Jesus. And they're riches that we'll enjoy forevermore. And with that being the case, you know, those who trust in Jesus, we can actually have a heart filled with hope even if we're impoverished today. We can have a heart that's filled with hope even if we're patiently coping with the trials and the troubles of this world. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Job chapter 17. I want to consider the final paragraph of this chapter, which begins there at verse 10. Here Job declares, But please come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. My days are past, my purposes are broken off, even the thoughts of my heart. They change the night into day, the light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? Here in the final verses of this chapter, you know, we find Job, he's returning now back to the pit of despair and and while he caught a glimmer of hope as he considered how others might be blessed by his story, he immediately remembers the pain that, that he's been enduring here. And it's for this reason that he was ready to embrace the grave, to escape those 
you know, who had made a mockery of him. And as he considers, you know, the end of his life here, he's calling the grave his home. His bed is darkness. He's talking about the worm being his mother and corruption being his father and just wonderful guy to hang out with, I'm sure. But Job here clearly felt hopeless. And as, as he considered his situation, you know, his heart was just empty of hope and it's for this reason that he just wanted to die. And, and well, I'm sure we all realize that the suffering of Job was greater than most people could bear. We must not fail to realize here that there's always hope for those who focus their faith on the Lord. No doubt Job was in a dire situation. He lost his, his kids. He had lost his wealth. He was sitting, you know, scraping his body with potsherds because of all the boils and just, no doubt it was, a, it was a, the worst point in his life. And I don't fault him for feeling hopeless and yet, he needed a counselor to come along and just say, hey, get your focus off yourself now. Get it back onto the Lord. Quit looking at the grave. Quit asking about the worms. And get your focus back on the Lord. Maybe that's where you find yourself tonight, in a place of just misery. Maybe you feel like you're sinking into the pit of despair. And, and I would just say, hey, get your focus off you. Get it back on the Lord. I like the way that Paul explains it in Colossians chapter 1. It's verse 27 where he declares that God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And when everything seems hopeless and helpless and it's that time when we need to refocus our faith on Jesus Christ because Christ in us is the hope of glory, meaning that Christ in us will fill us with a hope of everlasting glory as we look forward to the day when we're finally brought into the presence of our Savior and glorified forevermore. And so if you find yourself in the pit of despair, quit looking at you, quit looking at your problems, quit focusing in on everything wrong in your life and fix your focus on Christ because Christ in us is the hope of glory. And not only that, but whenever we find ourselves filled with sorrow because nobody came to our pity party, it's time to refocus our energy on, on a, another goal. Rather than trying to get people to come to our pity party so that we can tell them how bad life is and how unfair life is and, and how everything's not working out for me, like, Rather than focusing on all of that, how about let's focus on what God has called us to do. And if you're trying to throw your own personal pity party, it's time to refocus your energy on the goal of serving others in the name of Jesus Christ. And the reason I say this is because, listen, those who spend time serving others in the name of Jesus will have a heart that's filled with hope as they see the way that the Lord is using them to help others. I like the way that Paul put it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's there where he asks, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Here in these verses we find Paul. He's actually finding hope and joy in the fact that the new believers there at the church in Thessalonica 
were growing into their newfound faith. And while it's true that Paul was a man who suffered in many, many ways, we've considered all the different ways that Paul suffered, and no doubt he was a man of many sorrows, and yet he didn't focus on all the things that would make him sad. He didn't throw his own personal pity party. No, he went out and preached the gospel, led people to Jesus, and helped them to grow in Christ. And as he looked at all the new believers who were coming to faith in Christ and growing in the Lord, he was saying, hey, that's our hope. Our hope is that we together are eventually going to stand in the presence of the Lord. That's where his focus was. So he had a heart that was filled with hope despite the fact that he's a man who suffered in so many ways. You see, he wasn't focusing on himself, and, and, and instead he was focusing on his Savior and those that he was sent to serve. Please trust me when I tell you that those who are always focused on their own trials and their own troubles, and they're always quick to tell you how bad everything's been, and they're always quick to tell you their story, you know, about how nothing went right and all these sorts of things, they're, they're some of the most miserable, peop- miserable people in the world. Because they can't seem to focus on anything other than everything that's ever gone wrong in their lives. And I get it. Listen, we all have sad stories. Look at my face. I wake up every day and I go to the mirror and I'm just kind of like, oh. And I look at Brendan. She's like, yeah. But seriously, I mean, I've got lots of sad stories I could tell you. I'm sure you got lots of sad stories that you can tell me, and it's not to say that there's never a time and a place for those stories, but, but listen, if that's all we ever think about, if that's all we're ever focused on, there's no hope. And I'm here to tell you, you know, we've got kids that are growing up with, that, with this mentality of always looking at every bad thing that ever happens, and, and it's no wonder that the suicide rate is getting, you know, it's climbing, it's... it's there's a real issue with, with suicide in the world today. And there doesn't have to be because there's hope in Jesus Christ. And those who will focus their faith on the Lord so that we can spend time serving others, they will have a heart that is filled with hope as we see how the Lord uses us to show others his agape love. Listen, if your spirit has been crushed, my heart breaks for you. It really does. Because I've been there. I've had those times in my life, and I'm sure I'll have them again. But if your spirit has been crushed and your heart is empty of hope, I encourage you, refocus your faith on Jesus Christ. Refocus your faith on Jesus Christ because Christ in us is the hope of glory. Let's pray.